Hey gang, welcome back to the greatest Tuesday you've had all week. It's the True Wealth Radio Show. Matt, I'm stoked to be here where we are going to talk about four-letter words today. Ooh. We're dropping four-letter words like crazy. Don't get yourself fined, Right? Don't get yourself fined. Four-letter word number one, bank. Ooh, ouch. That's a fine. Someone's fining you. Four-letter word number two, risk. Ooh, even worse. (laughs) We are going to have a beat down on some of this today. You know, uh, it's we're But surprisingly, the market didn't really feel the beat down. Well, you know, today the markets, uh, they're definitely up. Uh, S&P back above 4,000, Dow above 32.5, NASDAQ above 11.8. So, yeah, solid day in the market. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll see if this holds tomorrow. And it was a good day in the banking. Like, if you're just looking at it on a one-day look, you know, I mean, Uh, banking did pretty good today. Like, you look at bank stocks today, and you're like, all right, you know, so you're saying there's a chance, right? (laughs) Um, I... Sure, sure. The, I'm the, just trying. I'm being optimistic today, David. I'm feeling good. <laughs> I I will tell you that the the markets. This may actually be an interesting sign of the mm-hmm. times, right? Consider for a moment that a week ago we were basically warned that the banking system might fail, mm-hmm. and today everybody is saying, "Well, we think the banking system's going to be okay." So maybe it's time to start looking at the future and how the stock market might be bottoming and climbing out of this thing, and the bear market might be ending. And you go, well, that escalated quickly. It can, <laughs> can't it, right? Like, Well, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Fed is looking at this and saying, you know, we're partly to blame, I guess you could say, because we raised rates so fast and banks struggled because they had a lot of money loaned out at lower rates and now the rates are a lot higher really quickly and it was a shock to the system so maybe the fed might start to back off i mean i think we're going to get a rate hike this week um but oh i think so yeah Yeah, i I think that we'll see probably a quarter point tomorrow yeah uh you know we should find out what is it 11 o'clock our time i think is when they announce uh, something like that. So 1 p.m. or, or mm-hmm. 2 p.m. Eastern, they'll they'll come out and announce. But um, and and that's not going to surprise me. I haven't gone and looked at the Fed fund futures or anything, but that seems like they're. Uh, remember, the Fed has a, a a delicate balance here. Some of what they try to do is wordsmith the market into behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's just say the right things or have the right people go to the right places and see the right say the right things. Right. And and so they they. They try to manage the message a little bit by, oh, well, we sent one Fed chair off to give a speech somewhere, and they said one thing. We sent somebody else somewhere else, and they said something a little different. And the market's constantly trying to triangulate on the language of the Fed to divine the behavior of the Fed. Mm-hmm. Okay. But at this point, uh, you're you're not – I don't think you're wrong, Matt, that the Fed has contributed somewhat to where the banks are at. Uh, I'm sure if they could replay their hand again and wind the clock back, they would say, hey, this inflation thing is more persistent than we thought. It's not just transitory because of COVID shenanigans. I'm also going to throw the Fed a bone, though, because if we look at it, the Fed had to raise rates because inflation was just going nuts. The banks that failed or are struggling or at risk are largely to blame themselves in this situation because of the fact that they made bad investments on their end. 
Oh, I don't. I yeah. don't blame the Fed for the banks going down. Right. No. I, I actually don't blame bad them. banking. And um, nor do I actually blame regulators or the FDIC wholesale. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and that's because I think many people really want to blame somebody. Oh yeah. Right. And you you, you can find blame. Sure, you can. Right. Because you're armchair quarterbacking at this mm-hmm. point. Okay. But it's it's. A lot of people want to look at this, and plus, it's it's easy and almost fun to blame in some cases because the faceless billionaire is evil. You know what I mean? Oh like, yeah. Like and and so it started with Silicon Valley Bank, and you're like, well, first of all, Silicon Valley that's like you know billionaire valley. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know when everybody's comparing their exotic cars and riding on private jets, uh, you know you start to feel. A little less compassion for a group, yes. you know, because you're like, well, it's it feels pretty elite, so it's it's pretty easy to say, well, these are not my people, right? Like mm-hmm. they're not going to associate with me, and therefore, uh, whether that's true or not, I still think billionaires are a, a lot like regular people in that they still have problems, right? right? Like their lives are not perfect either; they just have this crazy amount of resource. And and you'd think, oh well, you got this crazy amount of resources, so you could just buy your way out of any problem. Mm-hmm. No, not every problem is buyoutable, right? Right. And if you're like, well, I'd like to try it, it's like, no, I get it. it. It it sounds like it'd be a novel thing to be able to try, but not every problem can be fixed with a checkbook. Right. I mean, I think a lot of this. I mean, I touched on bad banking, right? Like mm-hmm. Credit Suisse, they've been in the news because of all the issues that they've had, and now. Right. And so Credit Suisse, Swiss Bank. Yep. Right? Yep. Okay. And we've seen in the news that they got bought out by, what was it? UBS. Uh, UBS. And Another Swiss Bank, by the yeah, way. Yeah, because they wanted to stabilize Even things. bigger Swiss Bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but going back to it, I think we sometimes have to just quit looking at someone to blame and say, what if it was just bad business? Because if you look at a timeline of Credit Suisse and their behaviors over the years, I think it's less than favorable. So you can go back and point to a lot of things where you're like, maybe you just didn't run a good business and this is the penalty or the product of just not running. We did not set this up, but Matt, you have walked straight into Mm -hmm. the topic of the day. What topic are we talking about? The four-letter word, which is risk. Mm. Okay. I've we've kind of said this on the program before, but I don't know that we've really given our listeners something to latch on to. And so uh, and for this one, I hope that listeners come back to this one on podcast as well. So if you're not hearing this live, this podcast, I think it's going to be relevant for a while. And it's we've talked about before that risk is a ambiguous term a lot of the time when it comes to finance. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it doesn't mean or because it means so many different things. Risk has different meanings in different contexts in the financial market. They all generally tie together a little bit, but depending on the context, it's going to change the meaning. Okay? So when we think about risk in our lives, we think about things like peril, okay? That's how insurance views risk. What's the peril? What's the probability of something bad happening? Mm-hmm. Okay? But risk that's what you that's our insurance company looks at risk and goes well how do we need to secure ourselves so that if that risky event occurs if a peril happens we have to be able to pay money to restore 
whatever was broken, right? So mm-hmm. um, now you can't restore a life, but in life insurance, you can say, what's the probability of somebody dying in a big group? And how much money do we need to set aside so that if a person dies and we have to pay life insurance out, we have that much money in our account so that eventually somebody's going to die. And then that person to the insurance company is faceless when they do their calculation. But then when they die, somebody's going to, that, that life insurance contract is going to pay out. And the insurance company expects that, mm-hmm. right? That's their assumption. That's the pricing of risk is how much premium they charge to the person they are insuring. Yeah. And guess what? If you are in a high-risk occupation or if you're in really terrible health and the probability of you dying is higher, it costs more because mm-hmm. that's how insurance works. It's kind of like if you want to build a house next to a, the ocean and you're in, an, in a stormy environment where you might have a tsunami wipe your house away or you want to build a house next to a river that floods every now and then, it costs more for insurance because mm-hmm. It's a higher probability. It's like build your house next to an active volcano. Probably costs more, right? That's just how insurance works. The higher the probability of something bad happening, the more it costs. This theme permeates the market because risk is also a behavior. A behavior. Do explain. What do do you mean by that? Think about what you just said about Credit Suisse. Mm -hmm. They've got a history of being more aggressive as bankers, yeah. right? Taking on riskier positions in the business. Yeah. Right? Well, so this history of higher risk behavior, which has led to profits at times and losses mm-hmm. at other times. But in this case, they were too far, like here's a silly way to look at it. They were too far out over their skis. And when something bad happened, they couldn't save it, right? Mm-hmm. They crashed. Right. And in this case, they crashed and the skis went flying everywhere and the hat came off and the gloves and you know it was a, they just did a full yard sale tumbling down this hill and UBS comes along and says well we're going to pick up the skis and the poles i don't know where your sunglasses went we're just going to have to give up on that and move on right and that's kind of how it worked is they're in cleanup mode yeah and this is really interesting because we'll talk maybe a little bit on the show. Like a little later, we'll talk about cocoa bonds because mm-hmm. that's going to be in the news. You want to hear about that? But wasn't it just high risk behaviors in the end? Like from a banking perspective, yeah. they, they, they leaned too hard into certain areas and then it came back to bite them. I think that's part of it. And I think one of the things that a lot of people aren't talking about, and I saw this on the news, they were breaking down a timeline of all of the mistakes this bank has made over the years that led up to the moment that the bank went under, right? And so, yeah, it was a combination of bad loans, but it's like, look at the track record of who you're investing in, right? Like, look at the corporation itself and say, are these the people that I should be investing in? And if you look back and look at the timeline, there's a lot of evidence that said this might not have been the best place to be investing. Well, if you look at the timeline... I think as investors, and I'm thinking investors different than banker, mm-hmm. right? The investor is yeah. the person that says, should you have bought shares in this bank? Mm-hmm. And then you can look back on it over the last probably few years and go, well, they kept kind of doing these things that were increasing the exposure to right. something and like they this they were increasing happening. their own liability, their own risk. Yeah. There was a lot of settlements where they had to pay a ton of money out because they had either done some illegal criminal activity and they were fined for it. And so 
they were losing money from making bad decisions. And then in the end, there was some bad loans. And that's the result. Right. So we need to unpack banks a little bit. Banks live in a funny land. And I want to help our listeners to understand this because banks do not operate the you the way that you or I operate, nor do they operate the way the government operates. Which how do they operate then? The, <laughs> well, the, <laughs> I want to know. Okay, so let's do, we'll do this. We're gonna come back. All right. We're gonna unpack. This is a concept. How do banks operate? Like like how do they use their money and the things that look different to them than they do to us? Okay. Okay. It'll all make sense. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon, and you got True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 12:40 KQEN. All right, gang, it's the True Wealth Show. We're back. Excited to be here. Uh, if you're just joining us, Matt, yep. the, there's podcast, right? Yeah, you should hit up our website, littlejohnfs.com, and go to the podcast section and check it out. Yep, it's in the, under the Knowledge Center, if you were curious. And I think you can also just scroll down on the homepage until you mm-hmm. find it, Yep, because our goal is to make this really easy. Today, we are unpacking four-letter words, right? Bank and risk, and really, we're going to focus on risk but we're talking about it in the banking system. Why? Because that's what everybody's talking about. So first, let me ask you, Matt, mm-hmm. do you think the banking system is going to collapse? I do not, because I don't think we'll allow it to collapse. It's in no one's best interest for banks to fail. Like, yeah. we all have our money there. We all want it to win. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a great example of sort of capitalism at large, mm-hmm. right? That at the end of the day, I, I hear people get into partisan bickering. Right. The idea of yeah. like your team, my team. And I don't like, know that that applies in this situation. I don't think it. There, there are certain things that we actually all agree that we want, even if we disagree with how we get there initially. So, yeah. We all want access to the money that we have in our bank accounts. You know, we all I mean, there are there are some basics that are easy. Like We all want clean air and water. We all want the ability to feed ourselves and our families. Right. We mm-hmm. all want certain basic levels of security. Uh, how we get there, we don't all agree with, right? Some people are more on the side of let's, you know, kind of all ch- put it in the pot together and divide it up. Other people are like, well, you know, based on what, you know, you earn and so forth. I get it. And then out of that, it's spiders to infinity. Mm-hmm. Here's the reality. We all want the banking system to work. Yeah. Right? We actually do. Because imagine if you tried to do every transaction with cash. Okay. Oh, and there are some of some people out there are like, oh, that's what I do. Okay. All right. Now, try to do a transaction. Your where, house burns down and all of your money burned down with it. Now, try. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's some. Then you could say, well, I'll put it in a safe somewhere else, right? I'll just di- you know, I'll still divide it up and in, into different stashes. Those are all real things. But what happens when you need to pay for something over the phone? Right. Right. You know what happens when you can't walk in and use cash because it's somewhere else. Yeah. Do you want to go to the city and pay your electric bill? (laughs) And what some people may say is, yeah, I'm willing to do that. But you're the exception, not the norm. If if you're living in Hermit Town, USA, like everybody leave me alone. uh, First of all, I think being a hermit ends up being bad. Mm -hmm. Right. If you are left to nothing but your own thoughts, you can spiral into dark places. 
I think I think we actually need each other. Even introverts do. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's part of what was made COVID so awful, right? Is the is the compartmentalization of people for a while, and look at the results later. The the your team, my team stuff that came out of it. Right. So, but that's a side note. Okay. The reality is we want the banking system to survive because it facilitates all these transfers of convenience, right? Mm-hmm. The same way if you put life on a credit card, I mean, like using it as a convenience spend, right? Mm-hmm. How about Amazon? How are you going to use Amazon with cash? Right. Right? Doesn't even work, right? Amazon, I've never paid cash for anything on Amazon. I have to have an intermediary that facilitates the money getting transferred. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't buy stuff online with cash. Right. So if that's the case, we we want the system to survive. I've, I say this about capitalism too. Most people will say like, I don't like capitalism, except, except that they don't realize that the parts of that they want require capitalism to make it work, mm-hmm. right? I, you know, I don't like capitalism, but I sure like to pick the color shirt I'm wearing. Well, that <laughs> option comes with capitalism, right? Otherwise yeah. you get a uniform. Yep. And I hope it fits you, right? <laughs> that that's kind of how that works. So, anyway. Why why risk, Matt? Like why why do we have to talk about that term so much in finance? Well, I think part of it is setting expectations, right? Where mm-hmm. you might say, "Hey, I want a ton of return. I want all the return." But I don't want any of the risk. How do you make that happen, David? Yeah, and unicorns. then you're gonna, yeah, unicorns. unicorns. There you go. So I think part of it is saying, you know what? Where am I at on the risk spectrum so that I can establish, you know, what type of return is realistic, or the other way around? I need this type of return. So what type of risk do I have to take in order to get there? Yeah. It's such a common thing that. So let's talk just briefly about the various ways that the term risk gets thrown around in finance. Mm -hmm. In the last segment, we talked about risk from an insurance perspective. That's how much do I have to calculate in reserves to pay for a risk? Okay, That's an actuarial calculation of risk. You just talked about an investor's version of risk, Mm -hmm. right? How much reward can I expect for the amount of risk that I'm taking? Risk can also be a measurement of volatility. Mm -hmm. How much fluctuation do I expect in my investment? Right. Significant fluctuation or very little of fluctuation? That is a subset of risk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Risk can be time delineated or not, right? Uh, risk can be how much loss you experience on a permanent basis or not, right? So risk can be a variable that goes into a calculation model, like, like, if you're looking at, for example, the capital asset pricing model for developing stock price, risk is the amount of volatility that you are having to pay for above a set rate. Mm-hmm. So in this case, oh, well, if we choose a 10-year treasury as a risk-free rate, then what's the amount of risk that one must accept in order to be compensated for not getting the risk-free rate? I think in simple terms what you're saying is, like, say the U.S. Treasury, say you could go get a bond. Um at 6%. And would you want to go invest in a stock that historically never has made any type of return, right? Like you could risk free go get the 6%. Would you yeah. want to invest in a stock that loses 2% every year for the last 20 years? Or let me phrase it in an even different way than that. 
what level of return must a stock give me mm-hmm. for me to be willing to take on that stock instead of the risk-free bond? Right. It needs to pay me more right. because it's not guaranteed. Now, this is totally relevant, by the way, talking about what has happened with several banks lately. Okay, uh, This is setting up such a great 101 investment heads up kind of course. Because think of let's start with Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. It's now been oh what ten days sure, since that like went that. down. I mean it was basically a week yeah, ago a Friday. Week or two. Yeah. What and we've since learned like what are some of the key factors? Right, we learned that they were heavily concentrated mm-hmm. in the venture capital environment. Yep, we they, learned that most of the investments were over the two hundred fifty thousand dollar FDIC insured limit. Right. And then we learned that there was the equivalent of a run on the bank triggered by some investor groups, mm-hmm. right? There were some venture capital groups that advised the companies they were working with to pull their assets. And they essentially created a run on the bank. Yep. And after that occurred, the bank did not have adequate assets. It was exacerbated by the fact that their reserves were invested in bonds that had lost money because rates had gone up. And so the bank didn't have enough money to pay for everybody when the when the run came and stay legally solvent. Mm-hmm. And since then, there has been government or quasi-government intervention on behalf. The Fed is not really the government. FDIC is not the government. But they're quasi-ish, right? You know, they're they're mm-hmm. directed by, they have people that are appointed by government, and so where they answer to Congress. And so so they have to intervene to stabilize the banking system. What happened to bondholders versus stockholders versus account holders in Silicon Valley Bank? The people that were holding accounts there and had money invested at the bank were made whole, regardless of the yeah. amounts that they had and, invested. And just just so our listeners can keep track of this, I'm gonna I'm gonna make one subtle but important addition to that phrase. The account holders that had money deposited mm-hmm. at the bank. They're not investors in the bank. Like putting your money in a bank, you're not investing in it. Right. That's a deposit. The bank is expected to hold that securely and return it to you on demand. Right? The only yeah. time it's not on demand is if you agree to a timed deposit, like a certificate of deposit, where you will leave right. it on for that period of time in exchange for a stated amount of interest. Yeah. Okay. That's how banks operate. So it's an on-demand, give me my money. That's not an investment. That's yeah. a deposit. If you had it deposited right. at the bank, you were made whole. Right. So depositors were covered. Back. Even those that had accounts higher than the FDIC covered. Mm-hmm. This has created a whole big stink, by the way. And I understand. If you're one of those people that's like, that's some nonsense right now. That, that you know, I could think of colorful four-letter words in addition. We won't say them on air, right? But that's a load of hooey that FDIC just basically waived everything and said, you know what, we're going to bail out the, the folks that had way too much money. I mean, that folks had tons of money in the bank. We don't care that they're wealthy or anything else. We don't care that that bank was bad behavior and high risk. They made them whole anyway, and, and everybody goes, wait a second. All right, that's fair, mm-hmm. right? But consider the consequences of if they had not been made whole, what might that have done to the faith in the banking system at large? 
if people lost massive amounts people of money. People would have been rattled, right? It could have caused more runs on the bank. On That's different the banks. key. Yeah. That, I think that is the key, is that the banking system itself needed... The, the, we need confidence in the banking system. But the shareholders, they yeah. paid a little bit differently. <laughs> so why does the share... and So shareholders and bondholders, they mm-hmm. look... The different experience too. Yeah. Why are they different? So first of all, the sh- the shareholder. Mm-hmm. What what is what makes the difference between a shareholder and a well, bondholder? Well, they're the lowest on the totem pole to receive any type of capital upon like failure of the company. So the shareholders were the lowest man on the totem pole. Bondholders were a step above them. So we're gonna we're gonna unpack some of this okay. a little bit more because this is. For everybody that's an investor out there, I want you to understand this key concept because it undergirds all investments in some form or fashion. It's something we call the capital structure. Okay, Sounds fancy, not complicated. If you want to know what the heck I'm talking about, hang on. We'll be right back. But we got to take our obscene profit break first. So stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with Matt Dixon. And Matt, we've been talking about debt today. We've been talking about, well, not debt. In this traditional, we were talking about banks, we were talking about risk, mm-hmm. and we were talking at the break about, and everybody's yawning a little bit, but this, you care it's about gonna this. It's going to get interesting if, here you'll, in a moment. You'll care. It's about to all tie together in yep. a weird way, because we have seen, right, uh, about 10 days ago, Soft Bank, or um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank dies, yep. basically. And then we're seeing what happens after a bank dies, like who's getting sort of made whole and who's not. Mm-hmm. And now we've watched the same thing happen in Switzerland, right, with yep. uh, UBS picking up... Uh, credit Suisse. Cre- yeah, Credit Their Suisse. Their biggest competitor. Yeah. And and this one, that gets really interesting, but I got to tell you something else to tell you about that. Okay. What First, who gets paid back? We talked about the capital structure. Yeah. Okay? And if, if a bank goes under, mm-hmm. okay, what's supposed to happen? Well, first, anyone that has secured debt within that bank would... First, depositors, right? We didn't talk about that. But if you got money in the bank, you're supposed to get made whole at least up to your FDIC insurance limits, okay? Which is why we talk about, uh, with our customers, how much money are you putting into banks above those thresholds? And might you be able to structure accounts in different ways to increase the amount of coverage you have by the FDIC? Right. Okay, so that's step one. But we're not talking about the depositors anymore. We're going to talk about investors and bondholders. Mm -hmm. The bank is is no longer going to be a bank. Who's going to get paid back? So what's the order? Yeah. So the first person would be the people with secured debt. So like say the bank um, is has a mortgage out for the building. That person that carries that mortgage is going to be made whole first out of the gate. And if you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, why would a bank that gives out loans have a mortgage? That's a fair question, but remember this doesn't just apply to banks. Right. This any is any company, company that yeah. were to go out of business is going to have to look at their capital structure. Where's the money loaned Who's out? going to get paid mm-hmm. back first? And so sure. secured borrowers 
first. Yep. Right. So, or for secured lenders get paid back. Right. So, if mm-hmm. you loan the money to an organization and you have collateral, yeah, you're going to get to use the collateral first. If you're in the first lien position, right? Mm-hmm. The lien means that collateral is pledged to you, and you're first in line to get it if something goes wrong. If I remember right, I think below that, the second person in line would be the ones with the unsecured debts. Yeah, and and just so you know, there may be levels of secured debt, right? Sure. You can have a second lien position, meaning, mm-hmm. well, once somebody gets paid back, then I'm next in line, right? Right. So there, that's part of this capital structure. But after all of that, that's when we start to get into the person that has the bond. Right. So, yeah. so you have issued a basically a loan we're going to call it that for simple terms right you are loaning them money you're going to be the next person that gets paid out and then you can get into weird hybrid securities like Mm -hmm. preferred stock which is sort of like a bond Mm -hmm. but it is subordinated to other debt right and so that's a, a term to know is that if you are subordinated to other people that means you're further back in line to get paid back yeah. What typically happens is you get paid more. Why would you get paid more if you had subordinated debt? Hmm. Maybe because you had agreed to a like higher rate of return on the investment that you had initially well, given. It's because you are in a riskier position. If yeah. you're further back in line, in order to incentivize you to purchase this to, to make this loan right which is mm-hmm. what the preferred stock still kind of is you would need to get paid better because you're taking on more risk it's back to that risk reward relationship mm. right yeah. and then finally if there's anything left this goes back to my lowest man on the totem yeah, pole then comment. the shareholder might get the scraps yeah okay now it works the opposite when everything's really great Okay, when a company is doing fantastic and it is growing in value, the shareholder has taken on the greatest risk mm-hmm. and would expect the greatest return in value. Right. And this, these are the stories of Berkshire Hathaway. These are the stories of Microsoft and Apple and the people that got in early back in the 1980s. And, you know, they had $2,000 investments that are worth, you know, $15 million today. Yeah. And you think, oh, they're so lucky. It's like, yes, but they also lightning struck. Well, and right? they took the most risk. That's the issue. They yeah. could have lost it all. Yeah, because if the company was to fall apart, they're the last ones to get paid out. So they got paid yeah. more so for that risk. The high risk, high reward investment, that's exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And all of this to now turn our attention for a moment to what happened that was really interesting but potentially concerning in the Credit Suisse UBS deal. Well, and, I know what happened. Yeah, and, and let me be really clear to our listeners. I am not quite sure what the ramifications of this will be. I know. But it's not trivial. The numbers are staggering. So what what happened, Matt? Well, people had loaned money out as a bond, right? And they're called cocoa bonds, which stands for contingent convertible bonds. And, and, when and let's call them cocoa. capital instruments. Sure. Okay. I mean, that's really what that's, we're calling it, them. That's true. The, the, they're, they're 
because they are they're bonds. They're bond ish, but they're yeah bond ish is a better description. Yeah. So these aren't it, the traditional bonds that you're used to. Here. Yeah, this is more of a European thing, if I'm correct. Well, yeah, they're yeah they they came post two thousand eight. Um, there's something called additional tier one bonds or AT one bonds. Yep, yep. They're nicknamed cocoa bonds. Sure. This is because banks needed to have enough reserves on hand. They're contingent convertible, meaning they can be converted from a bond to equity. Right. But the way it happens isn't like you might think. A lot of the time, you maybe you've heard of this before, a preferred stock, mm-hmm. which is it behaves like a bond. It, it's issued at a stated price. Mm-hmm. It pays a stated interest rate. But there's no specific maturity date. Right. Okay. It's kind of like a line of credit, right? That that a company can offer and it doesn't have a date where it matures. But the person is like acting as the line of credit, is what you're well, saying. Well, you're yeah, yeah, if you buy a preferred instrument, like a preferred stock, then mm-hmm. you're you're essentially making a loan without an end date. Yes. Right? Now typically there are reclamation there, there are points in time where you can redeem those bonds and you can get back out. Mm-hmm. Right? So that that's not uncommon to have preferred shares and and they're still liquid ish like you can get out at certain times uh but the the idea is that they are a not a stock nor are they a traditional bond mm-hmm. some of these are convertible preferred bonds and the incentive is hey make a loan to the company be in a safer position on the capital structure but if the company shoots up in value you may want to choose to convert your your preferred stock into common stock and then become a shareholder of the company and you'll make the value in the appreciation of the stock price. So that's an interesting animal. The AT1 bond or the cocoa bond that was going on in Europe, remember what happened in 2008? Yeah, banks failed. Right? And they failed because they didn't have enough capital. Mm -hmm. So this was a way for banks to have more capital. Because... They work in reverse of what you would expect a convertible, like a preferred convertible stock to work like. If the bank is going backwards and they're in trouble and they need more capital to they shore can up tap the balance into sheet, that amount, the cocoa bonds, these AT1 bonds, they convert. It's their fallback. Yeah. So this is a tripwire where if you go backwards, too far, mm-hmm. these stop being bonds-like instruments, and they become common stock. Right. And what happens when a bank goes out of business to the stockholder? Their share prices are worth virtually nothing. Yeah, they, they get hosed because the shareholder is last in line. So what happened is these people, anybody that owned these bonds could have potentially just been booted to the back of the line and watched their equity position and their where they were in the capital structure blow up all at the same time. Right, and so what we witnessed was what happened to the share price. They were trading at $10 or something a share. What are they trading at now? Less than a dollar a share, 90-something cents. Yeah. So huge collapse there, and, and Part Credit of- Suisse is being acquired by, by UBS, but- which means... The structure of the takeover included a write-down of all of the AT1 bonds. And by that, what I mean is they're just going to 
default. disappear. They're going to default. Yeah. So, and if we look at how much money was in those bonds, 17 billion with a B. Oh, I'm seeing something even more terrifying. Oh, no. Well, because the entire market for AT1s uh-huh. is a $275 billion market. Right. So they wrote off 17 So, so if they billion. write off 17 billion. What happens to all of the other investors yes. that are in this capital instrument? <clears throat> will they be willing to hold it any longer? And that is the concern. And that's yeah, what. Will this create a different run on the bank, a run on the reserve capital, that which is, could then destabilize that system? And that's what they're theorizing might be happening in the weeks to come. Yeah. And so that is quite concerning. Yeah. Okay. Now, there is a really novel, albeit kind of slick dare I say, maybe even a little bit dirty solution to this? Oh, really? There is. I want to know. Well, I'll share it. I'm not saying it's a good solution, but we'll wait until after this break. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 939 and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the Home Stretch, the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with Matt Dixon. All right. So I promised all of our listeners the dirty solution to the banking problem. Yeah. How do we prevent or dodge the bullet of all of these, you know, AT1 type bondholders from saying, hey, ooh, this one failed. I want all my money. So this is. I'm not advocating for this solution. I'm simply saying that it's a possibility. It's not off the table. Okay. So we're used to thinking about financial solutions, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. We've got to go in and figure out how to get capital here or there. Uh, We got to, you know, tinker with interest rates. We're going to have to do all these other things, but there is something else that could be done, which is we could tinker with the regulatory policy itself. Okay. Right. Uh, with let's let's talk about the uh, and and uh, just so you know, I am not an expert in bank policy, but understand that you have not only the the reserve requirements of the bank, but those reserve requirements get set by the FDIC and the and I, I think FDIC and and the Federal Reserve. I think Federal Reserve they set intr- lending rates between mm-hmm. banks, and they can set reserve requirements. So like how much money you have to how have much you in have to reserves. have on reserve but the federal reserve can do something else they have their own balance sheet and they have the ability to extend or contract their own credit facility their own window of liquidity so they could have simply said in the example of Silicon Valley Bank well why don't we change the reserve requirement to say that for a temporary injunction, you will we'll provide 30 days of liquidity um, at essentially zero interest for 30 days. And then in day 31, it would be retroactive interest. As long as you get it paid back within 30 days, you're good. They could have handled the entire run on the bank and they could have bought themselves time to facilitate or even modify the reserve requirement itself and said, well, you don't need 33% in these assets. You need 32% in these assets magically it was solved, mm-hmm. right? With the stroke of a pen rather than destroying a bank. 
I think you run a risk that if you do that, that you're basically saying, well, we'll bail you out of bad behaviors. Yeah, we'll just invent wiggle room every yeah. time there needs and, to be And so I'm not room. advocating for that yeah. solution. It's a dirty pool solution. Because it's basically saying, let's remove or modify the rules so the consequences aren't consequences anymore. Yeah. That's a bad idea, just so we're clear. But it is something that does exist and is on the table and could potentially occur in uh, Switzerland, right? right. I mean, they, there, there are still potentially ways that the European Central Bank, in cooperation with these super banks, which realistically we hate the term but may be too big to fail because if they fail the cascade effect of the dominoes knocking one institution knocks over the next knocks over the next could sort of implode the banking system so where does the risk ultimately get transferred to where a printing press exists mm -hmm. right so the risk gets shuffled around until you've got a, a, some way to absorb the risk in the system to buy time and then to regulate differently to try to prevent it in the future. Because that's the one thing about capitalism. It's so dang clever. It just invents ways to stay alive. Yeah, it just, yeah, you close a door, they find an open window, right? It's, it's just water looking to fill in the gaps and the creases and find its way through, and it's relentless. Mm -hmm. So that's both good and bad. Right, it's relentless in that it will find excesses, and you will develop bubbles, and they will pop. But it's also relentless in that you can try to contain it, and it will find a way out. It's going to find a solution. And so, I'm convinced that the the very things that got us into this problem will be the same things that ultimately get us out. Is the system is desperate to survive, mm -hmm. right? It's desperate to keep working, and as a result, I think it will. Look at that little shot of optimism. I appreciated that. Yeah, and so thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I I think there may be a lot more opportunity buried in this market than people realize. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Warren Buffett says it really well when he says, you should be greedy when others are fearful mm -hmm. and fearful when others are greedy. Consider the behavior of our government and the extraordinary lengths they went through during things like COVID to save the system, even at potentially the cost of the system in some way. I mean, but you know, it wasn't a let's kick the can down the road. It was a let's drop kick the economy down the road mm -hmm. to try to make this thing work and we'll solve it later. I believe that that incentive is still there and it's not just in the United States. I think that is a global incentive. And while there are those that would like to rewrite the source code of our, you know, the operating system of humanity. Mm -hmm. Human nature is not going to change. And they may like to rewrite the operating system of all the different countries. And, you know, I hear the, you know, the conspiracy around the World Economic Forum and so forth. Even if that were true, it's not in their best interest to destroy the system that protects the capital that they rely upon to manipulate the system. Yeah. Okay. So I would suggest that there, there, may, there may be less conspiracy than there is the theory of complacency and incompetency that drove some of this. But I think it's going to be solvable, too. Yeah. So anyway, we do not, to my knowledge, have a financial term today. Oh, I know. I was really right? looking forward to one, too. You know, it's funny because we should have uh, cocoa bonds would have been a great one to say true or false. Is it real? 
Right, because it sounds like you're talking about Cocoa Puffs, in which I would have been like, come on, man, that's not real. Yeah, but Cocoa Bonds are a real thing. You know what? Cocoa that... Puffs, they might be false. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let's just add that to the term. Let's just throw it up on the website. We'll All put right. Cocoa Bonds Cocoa Bonds, which are a real, not a financial term, but it, right. it falls under the category of sounds fake and isn't. Cocoa Bonds, love it. Look, as we get to the end of the hour, I want to encourage all of you. I realize that there's a lot of risks and a lot of ways to view risk in a system. You do not have to do this alone. Okay, If you would like a second opinion or would just like a, a, a look at what you're doing, some advice, uh, there's no obligation to this, but we would be delighted to uh, have an opportunity to speak with you. I encourage you to give us a call. Matt, how do they reach us? Five four one three seven five zero eight nine eight. All right. So with that, the music is playing and they're going to tell us to get off the air. So uh, don't forget to grab the podcast if you want to get the rest of this stuff. Um, mind your P's and Q's and understand risk and reward. Uh, littlejohnfs.com and 541-375-0898. Till next time, this has been David Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to The True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.